Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelum. This week, a longtime leader steps aside. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. Donald Trump makes a third run for the White House. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. But there is a move afoot to legally ban the former president from running again. We'll get you the details. Plus, why is Governor Jay Inslee in Egypt? And Democrats plan a holiday feast that includes some lame duck. All of that coming up this hour. But first, we figured we'd talk about the state legislative races because there were some surprises this time around. Joining me now is Paul Query with the Washington Observer. And in a year that was supposed to be a red wave, I think the David Horsey cartoon kind of spelled it all out. A picture of an elephant in a hole with the Washington state capitol in the background. And the caption, it just keeps getting deeper. Glad to be with you, Jeff. Republicans went into this cycle thinking they could pick up several seats in the state Senate and as many as 10 in the state House. Their sights were lowered in the primary in August when their candidates didn't do very well in a lot of districts held by Democrats. And so most of the action was on was in three districts that have been sort of designed to be swing districts by the most recent redistricting process. And that's the 42nd district up in Whatcom County. The 10th district, which um, centers around Whidbey Island, and the 26th district, which is on the Kitsap Peninsula, stretches from Bremerton down to Gig Harbor. Republicans had hoped to make real inroads in these districts, and they are actually sort of turning out, it's turning out kind of the other way. First-term Senator uh, Emily Randall in the 26th successfully defended her seat against Representative Jesse Young. In the 10th, the Republicans are actually going to lose a seat in the state house, or they're looking like they're going to in a very close race against a political newcomer named Clyde Shavers, who ran into some trouble late in the campaign over exaggerating his campaign record. Up in the 42nd district in Whatcom County, it actually looks like the Democrats, the Democrats have won all three of those races. So it's really um, the end result of that is going to be Uh, one vote larger majority for the Democrats in both the Senate and the House. And what about these two newcomers that are coming in for the Democrats in these seats that they have flipped? What do we know about them? In the 10th, that's Clyde Shavers, is something of a newcomer to the political scene. And he got into a little bit of trouble late in the campaign um, for exaggerating some aspects of his military record. You know, it was interesting to see that he um, held on. Looks like he's going to hold on by just a few hundred votes. That seat had been held by first-term Representative Greg Gilday, who's a sort of longtime community leader up there. Up in the 46th, the newcomer um, to the legislature, that's Democrat Sharon Shoemake, who's represented that area in the House for a long time. Um, She's a Western Washington uh, University economics professor. And she's been kind of a, an aggressive lawmaker on housing issues, increasing the housing supply um, in various ways. And I think you can see, you can look for her to push those issues in the Senate. And then one of the most interesting races, at least for me, was Republican on Republican. You had Representative State Representative Robert Sutherland, who was one of the most conservative members of the caucus and an election denier. He was ousted by the more moderate Sam Lowe. Yeah, and that's an interesting race. Um, the What we can think of as kind of the smart money realtor, some of the unions, an independent Sutherland from that seat um, in favor of Lowe, who's a Snohomish County councilman and considerably more moderate politically. 
Um, that's one of two races like that in the state. The other one's over in eastern Washington in the Spokane area, 4th District, where Representative Rob Chase was bounced by a fellow Republican named Leonard Christian. And that's actually a swing away from election deniers. Two other far-right members, um, Brad Clippert from the, tri- the Tri-Cities and Vicki Kraft from Vancouver, chose to run for Congress in the um, fourth and third districts, um, respectively, and lost badly in the primary. So those four folks are going to be replaced by substantially more moderate lawmakers in the next legislature. So was this election, whether it's nationally or as we've been talking about here in Washington state, a rejection of Trumpism? I think you have to you would have to say that Trumpism didn't do well in Washington. Joe Kent lost um, down in the third congressional district. Um, and you've had, you know, these moves in the legislature. And, and I was just on the phone with uh, a Republican operative this morning. And, you know, they feel like the Trump and the national brand of the Republican Party was a real drag on their candidates this year. So how do they change that? You no, know, I think that that's that takes a long um, that's a long process. You you know, first of all, you need to recruit candidates that are going to appeal to to uh, swing voters. I mean, it's looking like Republicans got absolutely killed among swing lo- swing voters this year. And I think that in order, at least in many places, or for Republicans to succeed, I think that, you know, that the sort of Trump wing of the party needs to sort of fade from the scene, which, you know, there's some indication that that might be starting to happen, but just uh, announced for president again. So he's going to be around for a while. All right, Paul Query with the Washington Observer. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Happy to be with you, Jeff. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, Nancy Pelosi steps aside, but not down. Her legacy, the good and the bad, when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, as the final results from the 2022 midterms continue to trickle in, we do know that the Democrats will maintain control of the Senate while the House will flip over to the Republicans. That means there's a lot of leadership changes. Obviously, Nancy Pelosi is not going to be Speaker of the House again, uh, as that job is likely to go to Kevin McCarthy. But Pelosi's not going to be in Democratic leadership altogether, stepping down, but she will remain in Congress. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field, and she's ending one of the most storied tenures in party leadership in American politics. She was the first female House Speaker in U.S. history, uh, Was uh, worked under President uh, George W. Bush, worked under Obama, worked under Trump, worked under uh, the current president, Joe Biden. And it was funny, she was she was announcing that she had been so proud to serve under three great presidents, <laughs> completely left out one of them, uh, and talked about her bipartisan successes with George W. Bush, with President Obama, and certainly lately with President Biden. And she said, look, she's had uh, this blessed career. Her father was a politician. She first stood on the House floor, she said, when she was six years old. And she said it's remarkable that she was able to go from a housewife to the Speaker of the House, something she really had never even imagined was possible. Uh, an extraordinary career. Most House speakers, once their party loses majority, they just go, we're out of here. Uh, there's nothing. There's no more up for them to reach. Uh, but she is a loyal uh, member of the Democratic Party. She wants to contribute. Uh, it's a very, very slender majority that the House has. She thinks she can do um, some work in terms of compromise to 
to kind of uh, hone down the edges of sharpness that uh, we're expecting from the Republican Party. In fact, we've even seen some of it this week, uh, literally a couple of days after the Republicans found out that they have the majority, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a woman who literally had been banished from all committees because of her extreme uh, talk and uh, even uh, physically threatening rhetoric, uh, is set to come back and have a position of power in this new Congress. And she was talking today about how we shouldn't be spending another dime on Ukraine before we build the wall on the southern border. Now, of course, none of that's going to get done with a, a democratically controlled Senate and a, a Democrat president in the White House. And it just goes to show that Republicans may end up just spinning their wheels and, and doing things for their base as opposed to actually getting things done over the next couple of years, because what she's talking about simply will not happen. We'll talk more about Republican leadership in a moment, but back to Nancy Pelosi. She's received a lot of criticism. A lot of Republicans just simply do not like her. Is it because she was a woman in, in power, the first female speaker of the House, or was she particularly left? Was she particularly progressive and too liberal, as a lot of conservatives like to paint her? Well, she's certainly not the most liberal person in Congress. There's there's a whole progressive wing that she was busy fighting off with a stick while she was a speaker. Uh, I don't, you know, I can't tell you if, if, if Republicans didn't like her because she was a woman. Um, I think they typically don't like any Democrat in, in power. It doesn't matter whether it's Speaker Pelosi or anyone else. Uh, but, you know, she also had a withering criticism of a lot of Republicans and she wouldn't stand for some of their nonsense. And I think that rubbed them the wrong way. So that may be part of it. Uh, and she ruled with an iron fist as as the House Speaker. One of the most effective uh, was able to get things through uh, despite the protestations of the Republicans. And I'm sure the Republicans will end up doing the same thing for the Democrats. And and so what is she going to do next? Is she just going to be a House member, just a, a member of, of the party and maybe a committee chair and that's it? It seems like that. I mean, that's what she suggested, but it's certainly going to be up to the new leadership. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries looks like he's poised to be the Democratic leader, which is basically the on-deck circle. And if the Democrats get back in control of the House and get the majority back, uh, it's likely he would become the House Speaker. He's 52 years old. He's African-American, descendant of slaves in this country. The historic importance is off the charts. You have Pete Aguilar, uh, who's going to be the Democratic Party chair. He's 42. These folks are significantly younger than uh, Steny Hoyer and Speaker Pelosi, both who were 82. 283 and 82. I think Hoyer's a little bit older, although neither of them look that age and certainly don't act that old. Uh, and then there's uh, Catherine Clark, uh, who most people have no idea who she is. She's been she's been the assistant speaker of the House for the last few years. She's 59. She's from Massachusetts. Uh, she will become the House Whip, the second um, most important person in the Democratic Party. And, of course, if Hakeem Jeffries ever became the uh, Speaker of the House, she would move up more than likely uh, to be the Democratic leader. So a lot of new faces. Uh, but, you know, there's progressives who are saying, hey, this isn't a done deal yet. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, said she liked Nancy Pelosi's speech, but she says it's too soon for her to be backing anyone for leader. You know, she goes, yeah, we need a younger generation, way younger, like my age. So we'll see what happens there. 
And then on the Republican side, you have this fight over who's going to become Speaker of the House. Clearly, Kevin McCarthy wants it. He's been salivating for that position for many, many years. But he doesn't have his house in order, so to speak, as you've got the uh, Freedom Caucus that really doesn't like him. There were more than, I think, 30 Republicans in his caucus that did not vote for him. He won his party caucus vote, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to become Speaker. Uh, on the, on the, I think it's January third. They're going to have these votes, and uh, if his if those thirty some odd Republicans do not back him for Speaker, and every Democrat backs, let's say Hakeem Jeffries, for example, it is theoretically possible that Hakeem Jeff- Jeffries, even though they're in the minority party, would get more votes than uh, Kevin McCarthy and would win the the, uh, the House speakership. So I don't think Kevin McCarthy is going to let that happen. I, I think that would be political suicide for the Republicans. I think what's more than likely to happen is that Kevin McCarthy is going to sit and make every deal he possibly can with the Freedom Caucus, give them the uh, committee chairmanships that they want, uh, give all the concessions he wants, saying, yes, we'll put this ridiculous piece of legislation on the table, even though he knows it'll fail in the Senate. Uh, just to get those votes so we can secure the speakership. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks, Jim. We have to take another quick break, but coming up next, could Donald Trump be legally barred from holding office? The short answer is yes, and it's more likely than you might think when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Just like Forrest Gump... Why are you doing this? I just felt like running. Some people just keep running for office despite waning support. Good space guy might come to mind for some Washington voters. Always on the ballot, never winning. But when it comes to the highest office in the land, only one person has ever been elected president in non-consecutive terms. The answer to that trivia question? Grover Cleveland. But Donald Trump hopes to be the second. Philip Bump is covering for the Washington Post and spoke with Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Sice. Philip, most of what I know about President Cleveland ends with that little piece of trivia. But what comparisons can we draw between former presidents Cleveland and Trump? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think anyone pretty much uh, prior to the 20th century, people are sort of in the dark about that. Uh, Cleveland is best known for having run for the presidency three times in a row, winning, losing, and then winning again, uh, which, of course, has drawn these comparisons to uh, Donald Trump, who would uh, be doing the same thing. Uh, But I think a better analogy here is not Cleveland, but actually Benjamin Harrison, the president who defeated uh, Cleveland in the middle of those three contests. Because what happened is uh, that Cleveland actually won the popular vote all three times, uh, but he lost because of the Electoral College uh, in that middle contest, and Harrison won. So in other words, Benjamin Harrison uh, only was elected president because of the Electoral College, losing the popular vote just like Trump, and then lost his re-election bid also just like Donald Trump. Had he run again for a third time, I think the comparison to Donald Trump would have been complete. The only other person, as you note in your report, to, to even have a shot at a return to the White House after years away uh, was one of history's most loved former presidents, Teddy Roosevelt. But but even he couldn't do it. So how quickly, when you look at these numbers, uh, how quickly does the support drop off for a comeback candidate? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it very much depends on who the candidate is. You're, you're right about Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt essentially had made this pledge he wasn't going to run uh, for office again. Then four years later, he decided he was going to give it a shot. Uh, failed to get the Republican nomination, uh, which may, of course, be the case that, that awaits Donald Trump. 
uh, and ran as a third-party bull moose candidate and, and ended up losing. Uh, so you, I think that we are in a totally different era now than back then. Obviously, since then, we've had Franklin Roosevelt elected four times until they instituted this policy that uh, wouldn't allow presidents to do that. Uh, it's just a very different world, and we're, we're dealing also with a candidate here uh, who, if Donald Trump were to get the nomination, he would be as old as Joe Biden was when he took office, right? So there, there are these other limiting factors that that are uh, inspiring a lot of voters to look in other places. Uh, and, you know, I think that the reaction to Trump's announcement involved a lot of people who said, you know what, I think we're going to look for someone new. And I think that's a dynamic that's pretty unique to Trump. And so 1890s, uh, early 1900s political formulas might not work out going forward for Mr. Trump. But what about when you look at a name like Ralph Nader on the ballot numerous times, never winning like President Trump was able to do, never winning. Uh, But if the former president's run is again unsuccessful, does he gain anything from it? Any notoriety like Nader did? Uh, I don't think so. I think Donald Trump's reputation as a presidential candidate is pretty much set in stone at this point, regardless of what happens this year, right? You know, Ralph Nader is one of a number of people who've run multiple times. You know, there are people who've run for president that have been on the general election ballot six times, uh, who, who the listeners have probably never even heard of. Uh, it's, it's, it is remarkably easy to be on the ballot. It is very, very hard to actually make any sort of dent. Nader, of course, probably best remembered uh, for having uh, scooped up enough of the vote in 2000 to potentially have affected the results of that election. But beyond that, you know, his legacy is one of consumer uh, consumer crusading and, and not necessarily politics. I think Donald Trump's legacy is, is pretty much established. Philip Bump with us on Northwest News Radio from the Washington Post. You can always find Philip's work online at WashingtonPost.com. And that's Northwest News Radio's Taylor Van Syce. Meanwhile, a member of the U.S. House of Representatives who served as an impeachment manager for the second impeachment of then-President Donald Trump is looking to keep the former president from making another run at the White House. Alex Prechet is covering for ABC News and spoke with our Bill O'Neill. Alex, this legislation it passed would effectively bar another Trump presidential run? That's right. Listen, less than 24 hours after the former president announced his now third run for the White House, we're hearing from Rhode Island Representative David Cicilline, who, as you mentioned, served as an impeachment manager during Trump's second impeachment, looking to circulate legislation that would ban Trump from ever being president or holding federal office again. And what's interesting about this is that if it were to come to fruition, Democrats would just need a, a, a simple majority in both chambers for, for, for it to pass. But what, what Cicilline is using is a section of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which basically states that no person who's hold office or uh, civil or military under the United States that's also involved in an insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to enemies thereof should hold office again. I'm paraphrasing there, but essentially, I mean, this goes back to the Civil War era. It was meant to, to keep former Confederates from ever serving in Congress or retaining power. How is this being greeted by Democrats to this point? Right now, it's not clear if Democratic leaders in the House would bring a bill like this to the floor, especially during a lame duck session. But what I would say is take some guidance from the past. Uh, This was floated after January 6th, but Democrats then instead opted to impeach Trump, even knowing that it was going to be a tougher hill to climb. You know, you would think that this would have to happen in the next few weeks with Republicans looking more and more likely to take control of the U.S. House if it does happen at all. That's right. It would definitely have to happen before this new Congress comes. So time is ticking if they're going to move on this. But again, I would caution, you know, Democrats have had the ability to do this before. 
and have uh, have opted to go another route. And of course, you would have to imagine this would end up in court if even if it does pass, and that might take a while to settle, maybe even beyond 2024, honestly. Well, yeah, and I, mean, I, mean, I think also part of the precedent is something that the Democratic leadership certainly has to continue, but it would absolutely be challenged by probably Trump and, and, and some other in some other groups if Democrats did go down this road. ABC's Alex Bershay with us on the Northwest Newsline. And that's Northwest News Radio's Bill O'Neill. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, plans for the lame duck session and Governor Jay Inslee is in Egypt. You spoke one-on-one with us about why. We'll have that when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. COP27, it is the annual get-together of the United Nations leaders when it comes to climate change. It happens to be in Egypt this year, and that is where we find Washington's own climate daddy, Governor Jay Inslee. Joining me now is Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris, and you had a chance to chat with Governor Inslee while he was over in the Middle East for this summit. Uh, What did he have to say? Well, the main thing to take away, and it's funny you use the term climate daddy because you'll recall he earned that term while running for president the last time, and it's because Because Governor Inslee basically built his whole platform for his presidential campaign on climate issues. Now, the messages coming out of COP27 have been of an urgent nature. They've been using the term code red because certain measures that scientists use to gauge where we are with climate change are at critical levels. But when I asked Governor Inslee about the messages that he wants to bring back about that, he says, we already see it here in Washington. He says, we have water that's too acidic to grow oysters. Sometimes it's too hot for spawning salmon. And he talked about all the wildfire smoke, which we suffered through uh, this last summer yet again, which he says makes cleaner air for our kids a priority because he says it really is also a health issue, especially for our children. They can go outside and play in the summer so this forest fire smoke won't devastate their lungs. But ultimately, we got to get on top of climate change to give our kids the chance to have a healthy Washington state. So bottom line, the governor says... If we want to have a state where we can actually live and survive, he says tackling climate change is an urgent priority, again, especially when it comes to things like wildfire suppression. Because I'll tell you, in California, they recently came out and said that just in 2020, the amount of smoke from wildfires basically negated more than a decade worth of climate progress. So it's an issue, and it's one of many that the governor wants to address. Well, and one of the other things that Governor Inslee has been pushing so hard on is this idea of the green economy, which are green jobs, jobs for manufacturing, say, electric cars or the infrastructure that supports them, that sort of thing. What do you have to say about that? Well, he had quite a bit to say, actually, because part of what the governor was doing in Egypt was essentially trying to drum up business. Now, he did highlight some businesses that exist in Washington, uh, like uh, making photovoltaic cells uh, up in uh, up in Whatcom County, the company in Moses Lake that makes silicone anode batteries. Of course, we have Eviation that's making all-electric airplanes, had its first successful flight recently. And the governor said there are a lot of Washington green business people that are in Egypt with him. 
but he also took the opportunity to talk to other businesses because he wants to be able to draw more green economy jobs to Washington State. Met yesterday with a company that can make green cement with reduction in carbon emissions. This is a huge issue internationally. Green hydrogen, so we can use hydrogen to fuel uh, all kinds of different enterprises. Shipbuilders, some nuclear companies as well. So the governor really pushing hard in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt at the COP27 conference to try to bring more green economy jobs here. He believes it's a Washington is a forward-looking state and has been, especially when it comes to climate and changing our economy for the future. And so he's really trying to make that happen. Now, there are a lot of countries out there, including the U.S., depending on who's in the White House, that can be very resistant to acting on climate change. So Governor Inslee is also working with divisions within countries, say like state governments on the U.S. that are working to fight climate change. You're right about that. You're not seeing countries like China having great participation in the COP27 conference. But the governor has long said that working on a a smaller, more local level, like he's done with the Pacific Coast Collaborative, which includes British Columbia, Washington State, Oregon, and California, will also be necessary in order to move forward and make more progress toward preventing this global warming that could put us over the tipping point. So again, like you mentioned, he's over in Egypt and he's working with these states and provinces and other smaller governments like cities and counties from all over the world that he says are moving forward. And I'm proud to be able to say Washington has the best policies, most effective policies to give us cleaner air and fight climate change, to give the world hope, frankly. We're giving the world hope by Washington leading this clean energy revolution. Now, there are some on the other side who have said, including uh, now former Republican U.S. Senate candidate Tiffany Smiley, that climate should be tackled locally. But Governor Inslee believes that it's it should be done at all levels because we won't make progress if we just try to do it piecemeal. He believes that everybody needs to be involved in order to make any progress in reducing greenhouse gas emissions and staving off what scientists have said repeatedly could be a catastrophic disaster. But there are some Republicans here in the U.S. that are buying in, correct? That's correct, in a sense. Now, one of the standouts at the COP27 conference was Indiana's governor, Republican Eric Holcomb, who was there primarily like Governor Inslee, to try to draw green jobs. He's one who has said climate issues should be handled locally, and he's even gone so far as to say humans aren't the only cause of global warming and climate change. But along with Holcomb, uh, Governor Inslee says there's been a couple of Republican governors who were there, and all of them are really trying to move forward with the green economy, I would assume, because they know this is something that's coming. It's almost unavoidable now because there's so much momentum toward it that they want in on it, they want to get the jobs, and they want to have the jobs uh, here in the U.S. and in their states. So where is John Kerry in all of this? President Biden's special envoy on climate change. Well, John Kerry has been a a big player at COP27, as he has for the past couple of years, former 
Vice President Al Gore, also, you know, a big climate change uh, prevention advocate, was also there. Now, Governor Inslee, what was interesting here, says that he met with the not only the climate envoy, the former Secretary of State, John Kerry, but also a minister from Ukraine. And the governor says he himself reassured this Ukrainian minister that Americans want to see through the protection of Ukraine's democracy. I was reassured by him that Ukraine would remain committed after this is over to their commitments to defeat climate as well. So even though they are still deep in their war with Russia, Ukraine is promising to maintain its commitments to preventing climate change. And finally, and liftoff of Artemis 1, we rise together back to the moon and beyond. Perhaps we call this a point of personal privilege because both you and I, Ryan, are big space travel fans. And NASA, of course, heading back to the moon with the launch of their Artemis mission earlier this week. But what a lot of people don't know is that a good portion of that rocket was designed and built here in Washington State. And you had a chance to talk to the governor about that as well. Indeed. And, of course, it was a point of personal pride for the governor because keep in mind with this Artemis rocket, it is made up of tens of thousands of components. But what you see on that core stage, the rust orange central stage of that rocket, most of that was built by Boeing, including not only the liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen tanks that are within it to fuel the center stage of the rocket, but also the avionics, the electronics that help guide the rocket and and help uh, a, a future pilot to fly it. In addition, if you look at the base of that core stage, you will see four RS-25 rockets. Those used to be the space shuttle main engines. And in fact, all four of those on the first few Artemis missions are shuttle veterans that were repurposed and upgraded. Those were built by Aerojet Rocketdyne of Redmond. In addition to that, Aerojet has a ton of stuff on this rocket including the uh, RL-10 engine that's responsible for the translunar injection burn, a lot of guidance there, and even the little things that cause the balloons to pop out when the Orion spacecraft splashes down so that it remains afloat and upright. So a couple of Washington companies with a huge role in Artemis. And when I asked for the governor's reaction, because we talked shortly after that successful launch, he says, you know, this is just a continuation. Washington State and our aerospace industry has had a huge role in all of our space travel. He referred to it as interstellar space travel. We're not quite there traveling from one solar system to the next, but I get where he's going there. I mean, we certainly had a a huge role uh, in Apollo and in the building of, of those rockets. And ever since we have been involved and the governor was very proud of that. He says, as we move into the future, it's not just Boeing. It's not just Aerojet. We have Blue Origin and a slew of other companies that are going to be a big part of our adventures farther and farther out into the universe. All right, Ryan Harris, thank you so much for your time and insight and for that one-on-one interview with Governor Jay Inslee. Thanks, Jeff. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, instead of turkey, how about some duck? Lame duck. We'll have the Democratic hopes for a holiday feast when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. 
Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Well, the lame duck session is already begun over in Congress, and President Biden has a long list of things he wants to accomplish. Joining me now is Karen Travers from ABC News in Washington, D.C. And traditionally, not a lot gets done in the lame duck Congress, but uh, what is the president hoping that Democrats can get done before they lose control of the House on January 3rd? Well, they've got things that they have to do. They have to pass a government funding bill. And that's because, you know, stop me if we've talked about this before. Back in September, when they were up against the big deadline of September 30th and the government shutdown was potentially looming, they did a short-term extension, which they do every year, and that kicked the can into December. So we're looking at December, another deadline. So they have to pass government funding through the end of the fiscal year. So that's something they absolutely must do. And the White House is looking at this, though, as, okay, this is a must-do item, and it's also our last chance where we have the House and we have the Senate, so let's try and see what we can get in there while we still have our chance to get as much as we'd like into a bill like this. It's kind of, you know, the last big train leaving the station and our best chance. So the White House has said they'd like to see money for disaster relief, more funding for Ukraine. Uh, They'd also like to see COVID money. Remember, back in the spring, they had asked for over $20 billion for COVID. They're never going to get that. That's never going to happen. But they'd like to see maybe up to $9 billion for COVID if they can get it. They still have to get 60 votes in the Senate. So it's still a negotiation here. But they're going to try and get what they can into this government funding bill. Like I say, last big train leaving the station. Then there's the wish list. So that's the must-do item that has to happen. Then there's the wish list of the other things. There's the uh, marriage bill that the Senate moved forward on this week that they're expected to pass with some ease uh, after the Thanksgiving break uh, that would codify that uh, same-sex marriage and interracial marriage at the federal level that the 12 Republicans joined the Senate Democratic majority this week to move forward on. That's a big one. The White House is really excited about that. They're also looking to see judicial nominees move forward, the defense authorization bill, perhaps the Electoral Reform Act, and maybe some Democrats in the House are clamoring for some movement on the debt ceiling so that it makes it easier when the nation, uh, the government gets closer to that limit in the future, because uh, some Republicans are already starting to say concessions and the next time we get closer to the debt ceiling long (laughs) list of things that they would like to have uh what is likely to get through what is not yeah so you know the funding bill has to happen the marriage bill will almost certainly happen that seemed to be kind of on the path as they call it after we saw those republicans join the democrats this week on the procedural vote other things you know it's going to be tough uh because they're really up against the clock you know, it's kind of funny in Washington where they say, we have such a long to-do list. We have such a big wish list. The clock is ticking. See you later. We're taking a week off for Thanksgiving because it's Friday and Congress is on recess now for the whole week. They're back and the clock is really ticking because then they're up against the Christmas, New Year's break. And the new Congress, you know, we think of like the president start on January 20th, but new Congress, it's like January 2nd and 3rd when they all come back. And it kicks off right away. So they really only have December to get all of this done. So what about that Respect for Marriage Act? It was rather unusual that 12 senators, Republican senators, joined the Democrats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. um, Not unexpected when you've been following this over the past couple of months. Um, But I think it was notable that, uh, one, they put it after the midterm. You know, there was a lot of talk about maybe doing this in August and doing it in September. Some Democrats said, let's do this before the midterm. So we have something to show voters, you know, say we, we did this, like check this off. Others who said, 
we have a better chance of getting more Republicans on board if we wait until after the midterms, because the pressure, maybe the pushback from voters would not be there. And uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate majority leader, acknowledged that publicly saying, you know, we felt that we were letting the bipartisan play out by letting this go after the midterms. But there was a little bit of breathing room for some Republicans. A couple of Republicans who joined in are retiring, and they're ones who were very against this years ago. So it's notable, one, there's just a big cultural change in this country. The public opinion has shifted on this so dramatically in the last handful of years, but also among members of Congress, too. All right, ABC's Karen Travers from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Great day, thanks. Finally this week, Washington State Democratic Party Chair Tina Podlodowski, who is no stranger to controversy, is once again under fire. Axios reports Podlodowski threatened to cut off campaign aid to fellow Democrats during the midterm elections if they supported or even held a meeting with nonpartisan Secretary of State candidate Julie Anderson. Now, some Democrats, including House Speaker Lori Jenkins, appear to support Anderson instead of the Democratic candidate Steve Hobbs. And that didn't sit well with the party chair. We are urging all Washingtonians to support Steve this November. Now, Republicans were shut out in the top two primary with Anderson and Hobbs advancing. But in a campaign video... Podlodowski seemed much more concerned about a write-in challenge to Hobbs. We must do everything we can to keep MAGA Republican write-in candidate and election denier Brad Clippert from threatening the integrity and security of Washington's voting process. Brad Clippert didn't even come close to getting enough votes to win. Now, the complaint about Podlodowski's alleged threats comes from State Representative Joe Fitzgibbon, who says he felt she was prioritizing the Secretary of State's race over maintaining a majority in the legislature. Now, the issue has caused a rift in the Washington State Democratic Party. Some have even called for a change in party leadership. Podlodowski initially denied making the threats, but when confronted with text messages provided by various Democratic candidates, she told Axios that campaign support for lawmakers was never in any danger of being withheld. And that'll do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out some of our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening and have a good week.